Hi everybody, Bob Olson here with Afterlife TV. You can find us at afterlifetv.com. This is where we search for evidence of life after death and ask the meaningful questions around that subject. Today we have a guest I'm really excited about. I've been trying to get this guest on since season one and we finally made it happen. Uh, I want to welcome the co-author of Hello from Heaven. I'm going to show this in a minute. Uh, Bill Guggenheim. Hey Bill, thanks for coming. I really appreciate it. Good morning, Bob. This is great. Um, technology, this is the first time you've done a Skype interview, right? Very much so. It's only my second time I've ever using it even. That's awesome. We did, uh, we did a couple other people and it was the same, time, same, same situation that uh, they had never done it before. And so I love, love that this technology allows us to connect and do wonderful things like this in order to educate the public. So thanks. Thanks for making that work out. Um, today we're going to talk about how after-death communication provides strong evidence of life after death. Let me just say right off the bat, you were the one, you and uh, your former wife Judy sort of coined the term after-death communication. Is that true? Yes, we, yes, we did. We are the ones who uh, actually came up with a term, terminology, after-death experience, after-death communication experience, or ADC. Yep. And we also defined an ADC, what it is. And uh, we did the in all the initial research. We interviewed two thousand people. I, it's amazing that uh, now, and we're also talking. When did you start this research? In nineteen eighty-eight. Yeah. So I mean, you guys are were just way, way ahead of your, uh, way ahead of the curve here, way ahead of your time. And um, you know, I don't want to jump too ahead. Uh, you did seven years of research, right? I'll just. Over 2,000 people interviewed, it says. In all 50 states and all 10 Canadian provinces. A total of about over you know, 3,300 first-hand accounts among those 2,000 people, That's right? If they weren't first-hand, we would not accept their experience. Fantastic. And 353 of them are in this book. I have been recommending this book since at least the year 2000. Uh, my journey started in 1999. I came across this, blown away by it, and I just have not stopped recommending it. So let's take, let's just show people. Hello from heaven. Uh, you can't, you can't go to any one of my websites um, and not see me recommending this book. It's a fantastic book. It is a classic. It is uh, something that I think everybody who's interested in this field should read. We are going to, thanks to you, Bill, and I appreciate this. I have three copies here. I'm going to give them away. Anybody who um, has signed up for our email list, the reason we did that, I was going to do it through Facebook or Twitter, decided to do it through our email list because it's hard to get people's addresses through Facebook. So we said, okay, sign up for our email list. We're going to select three random numbers um, out of a total of how many people we have. So let's say we have 10,000 people on the email list. We'll select three random numbers, and then we'll just count down, and we'll pick those people, and that's how they're going to win them. Um, first time we've ever done that as well, so I thank you for donating those to these people, and I know they're going to be grateful for it. You first published this, you self-published it in 1997, right? 1995. 1995, a couple of years before, okay. And yeah. then what happened after that? They well, we so self-published 5,000 copies in October 1995. By, the, by Christmas, that same December, two months later, we had a contract with Bantam Books. In two months? We signed contract with Bantam Books. <laughs> he and had a literary agent 
and they said, we want you to go out and sell 10,000 copies, create some buzz, as they call it. Yeah. We did sell 1,000 copies in four weeks, the second thousand in 31 days, and well on our way. And meanwhile, through a series of, quote, coincidences, or I call them coincidences, <laughs> uh, various uh, uh, editors learned of our book through Gail Ross, our, our uh, agent. Yeah. And the, for instance, she would have a copy in her backpack and was sticking out and said, oh, that looks interesting, I see it. And she gave it to three and then she had to give it to a fourth one because she deals with all these people equally. And there was a bidding war uh, and uh, Bantam Books had the contract. Amazing. I mean, it's an amazing story. I actually was reading a book years ago um, about, it was, it was written for writers. They had interviewed a bunch of authors about how they became successful. You guys were in there. And uh, it told that the story in much more detail. It's a fascinating story. It's really yes. cool. And I also, I love the fact that you told the, the publisher, you can't change a word, right? Is that true? That's what, that's what they said in there. Uh, that's true because uh, a number of publishers and people along the way, they wanted to change the title. Yeah. And they wanted us to, it's a warm and fuzzy book. It's a very touchy-feely book because we're dealing with people who are bereaved, yeah. who are grieving. Yeah. And we wanted it to be that. And incidentally, we began giving workshops in the second year of our research. So we had already been out giving hundreds, well, dozens and dozens of workshops during those next six years. And that's where we found more and more people to interview as well. Yeah. It was primarily for the Compassion Friends, which is the largest self-help group for bereaved parents in the United States or the world, actually. Wow. So we're out at national conferences and everything. Yeah. And, uh, it just evolved and this is what the language they could hear it in and uh, so a couple of publishers wanted to make it more scientific and objective in other words arm's length and yeah. say people reported re allegedly reported that the yeah. scientific psycho battle <laughs> yeah that's right right exactly and, uh, said no this is the way we wrote it and this is what you know whether you sell it or not we'll sell it and uh, we did and I can't so what's it been 17 years roughly 16 years 16 years I can't go into a bookstore and not see several copies of it on the shelves I mean in which and they only do that when books are flying off the shelves I mean you know a lot of times you have to order the book that you want sure uh, they always have copies of this it has just been really successful as a result um, what was your background uh, tell us a little bit about your background you know how you ended up getting into you know conducting this seven years of research that's kind of cool well my background is everything but what you'd expect I used to be a stockbroker and a securities analyst for two different small firms on Wall Street in New York City that was my home okay. I was raised in Long Island and grew up in New York and was in and around New York New Jersey for the first half of my life and I didn't believe in any of this I was agnostic maybe slightly atheistic I'm not sure yeah. I used to argue against all this and now we're going to move ahead to 1977. Uh, Judy and I moved to Florida and we were living in Jupiter, Florida, which is near the Palm Beach area. And she said, come on in, Elizabeth Kubler-Ross is going to be on the Donahue show. Phil Donahue. The yeah, I remember. A <laughs> tall man with very white hair. And I had heard her name, but I didn't know who she was, really. And I went in and um, she didn't speak about death and dying, which was her specialty. She spoke about near-death experiences, oh. which, which were very interesting to me. I'd heard of them and read Raymond Moody's book, Life yeah. After Life, which yeah. was published in 75 and whatnot. 
and uh, watched the show for an hour and was moved by it and went back to my office and back to the Dow Jones Industrial Averages. <laughs> which were my what a contrast. Yes, and uh, then this same show was run two weeks later on a cable channel. And this time I watched it again because I, I, there's something about Elizabeth Kubler-Ross. She could speak directly at a camera without blinking, and she just drew people in. She was charismatic as an understatement. She, and she was a very small woman. I, I, you'll see that I, I met her later on. But uh, it had her name and address at the bottom of the screen. And so very magnanimously, I wrote a check in support of her work. It's the kind of the thing you'd write, you give to the Boy Scouts or the, uh, the Heart Fund or something, $25. Yeah, and that was my out of boy, good boy for the day, <laughs> and, and that was it. And I figured, you know, that that was all. And then several weeks later, I received two things in the mail. One was a set of audio cassette tapes from her called "Lessons from the Dying Patient," which didn't interest me, frankly. I was a little bit squeamish physically. I didn't <laughs> want to hear about cancer and tumors and all the details. Wow. Uh, yeah. Termoyel. And the other was an invitation to attend a five-day workshop with her called Life, Death, and Transition. Now, I was frankly elated to be invited by somebody who was very world-famous already. Yeah. And uh, she went on to receive a, uh, uh, a nomination for the Nobel Prize for Peace. She didn't get enough to win it, but she was at least nominated by several people. Anyway, uh, so I felt really good about that at first, but it was a number of months away. And the workshop was actually only two hours away uh, at this point from where we were living. Hmm. And uh, I thought about going, but as the time grew near, I realized if I went, I'd probably be taking up the room of a doctor, a nurse, a social worker, a chaplain, somebody who works with a terminal. And my thing's Wall Street. What's that got to do with anything? And so I waited to the last day of registration, which was in, uh, I forget what month, September, October. She lived in Flossmoor, Illinois. Mm-hmm. I called her office expecting to uh, speak to a secretary. Well, it had been snowing that day. The woman who was her secretary, a Catholic nun who did that, couldn't get to work. And so Elizabeth answered her own phone. Now, this is like calling Julie, somebody and getting Julia Roberts or Tom Cruise or whoever your movie yeah. is, you know, a big name. <laughs> Tilt. That's yeah. right. What do I say now? So I went and thank you very much for inviting me, Elizabeth. I really appreciate it, but please give my seat away to somebody else who can truly benefit. So she listened politely, and she remembered me, by the way. And uh, she said in her German-Swiss accent, Bill, I think you should be there. And I heard myself saying, like a little boy, Elizabeth, if you think so, how come? <laughs> and I say in my workshops, at least it proves one thing, I'm a pushover for dominant women. <laughs> a very dominant woman. She's the six now, but at that time. And uh, I went a few months later, and the uh, workshop was in North Palm Beach. And uh, this was about life and living, and it was uh, 70 people sharing all the pain in their lives, not just the, the grief of uh, some people are terminally ill, but not just the grief of dying or the grief of loss of a child or a parent or a spouse dying or things like that. It was the grief of divorces. It was the pain of all kinds of losses in life. Loss of money, loss of health, loss of you name it. As Elizabeth Kubler-Ross said, 
you could lose your contact lens and go through the five stages of grief, <laughs> idle bargaining, uh, anger, depression, and finally acceptance when you find it again. Or, <laughs> so, by the third day, we all wanted to go off to an island to be together as one big family. Yeah. And, and send for our, you know, next to you know people we love, our families and whatnot, and, and go off and never, never land. Which happens in a lot of workshops, people. Sure. Like sure. And during this workshop, uh, on Thursday evening, it was a sharing time, and uh, the, the hard work was behind us, and now it was time to share some nice things. And so there was the mother there whose daughter had been hit and killed, hit and killed by a car a little over a year earlier, and she went on to narrate how. She had this most remarkable dream, but it was unlike any other dream she ever had. It was much more vivid and real and three-dimensional and it's absolutely clear in her mind. And how the daughter had been on a swing in a tree and how she was dressed and how healthy she looked and everything like this. And how comforting this dream was. And uh, she gave a lot more detail than I just did. It's, it's in her book. Yeah. And, uh, because I was very analytical, as soon as I heard the word dream, I was very happy for her she'd had this experience that I regarded it as a dream. To me, dreams weren't real, so I dismissed it. Okay. Ah, right, right. Then she went on and told how her teenage son had seen his deceased sister while he was doing his homework. He looked up and saw his sister standing there and could see what she was wearing and everything. And then he uh, came running out of his bedroom into the living room where, where his parents were watching TV saying, Kathy's there, Kathy's there. And he was all very excited and whatever. And I'm thinking rationally, let's see, 15-year-old boy sees that sister, this was Peoria, Illinois, uh, what are the odds of this, oh, let's see, marijuana. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. Going through my little trip of what kids could do back then. <laughs> and there weren't as many things as there are now, but I, I didn't think he was doing LSD yet, but marijuana is a good explanation, so I dumped that one. Right. And Elizabeth Kubler-Ross went on to, to uh, with a story of how a patient of hers who had died 10 months earlier had come back to her. Oh. And that she told in great detail um, and it had changed. Elizabeth was about to quit her work. There was so much opposition to it from the establishment, meaning hospital officials and whatnot, because what she would, would do is go into a large hospital, had a lot of wards and whatnot. And said, I want to interview some of the terminally ill patients. Yeah. Back then in the late 50s, early 60s, 60s, even 70s, nobody was terminally ill. They were all going to get well and go home. It was all denial, denial, denial. Yeah, yeah. And, and uh, you know, nurses would come in, plump up the pillows for people. You know, they weigh 90 pounds, have got tumors the size of basketballs, but they're going to go well, get well and go home. So that, and people didn't talk about it. Interesting. Uh, this is the old days, the dark. Uh -huh. Before Elizabeth's work, before yeah. hospice, way before hospice, and so uh, there was a lot of. They called her the vulture lady, the death and dying lady, but it was animosity, mm -hmm. and there was so much pressure. She was almost going to resign, and she was going to type a letter that night. And this woman met her at the elevator in the apartment in the office building, and they walked from the elevator down to Elizabeth's office, and Elizabeth recognizes the woman vaguely not quite right away, but she's not fully solid either. And what is this? What's going on? And they get to the office and the office and in the office the woman says, you must promise me not to submit a letter of resignation. Your work is too important for you to resign. 
and Elizabeth agrees to that. Then she remembers this was a patient of hers who had had a number of near-death experiences and different things like that, mm. and she had a minister who was very close to her, who Elizabeth also knew, and she, Elizabeth said to her, would you mind terribly uh, taking a, uh, writing a message to your minister? So here's this woman who has died, who yeah. takes a pencil and writes a, min- a, a, pencil, a pencil message to her minister, and then exacts the same promise from Elizabeth a second time to not quit her research, and then smiles and walks toward the doorway. And then Elizabeth stands there for a moment and pause, and then rushes to the door and looks up and down the hallway in a typical office building. There's nobody in sight. Right. Gone. Now, anybody else, I would have found some way to dismiss it, but Elizabeth had everything to lose nothing to gain in telling a story like this. Yeah. It's a 1977, long before there was anything on this TV or anything else. Mm. And in our book I say, if you if a pin had fallen on the ground, it would have sounded like a crowbar falling on a concrete floor. <laughs> yeah, yeah, right. Not stunned. I was totally stunned. And then she did something else. Elizabeth flew Raymond Moody down from Virginia to Florida to talk to our group at her expense. He did. And uh, Raymond talked about near-death experiences and two or three people in the group had had something like that or had one. And so this is a wonderful evening. And uh, that's a Thursday night, Friday the workshop's over, we all go home and on our eye and whatnot. And so when I got home, I began looking for other accounts of people who had been contacted by somebody who died. Yeah. Now, keep in mind, there's no internet in 1977. That's right. That's right. Plus, I sure didn't know about it. Or, <laughs> the bulletin boards, maybe, but uh, that's, that's that's like saying I want to be a cosmonaut and want to walk on the moon. No, right. So I, I went to the public libraries and began to look for books and journals and anything I could find. Mm-hmm. And I did I found one story here, two or three stories there. One occasion, I found a whole chapter in a book mm-hmm. by a Canadian uh, writer, but nobody had given them a name, and yet there was a consistency to these stories. And now, because I'm a stockbroker, securities analyst, I'm not a medical doctor, Yep. not a PhD, I don't have a master's degree, nothing. And so I'm thinking, well, I'd like to follow this up, but if I wrote a book, who's going to publish it? Who's going to read it? Right. I have to have credentials in yeah. our society. So I went to Raymond Moody, who I got to know through a mutual friend uh, over the years, and I said to Raymond, how about... I'll find people for you to interview, and the, he had another friend who was into parapsychology. We'll find the people, you interview them. And Raymond never said yes, but he never said no. He just said, well, I'm working on this, now I'm working on that. He kept putting me off. So 11 years later, 1988, um, I hear a voice in my head say, uh, this is, uh, Bill, This is, do your own research, write your own book, it's your spiritual work to do. Hmm. And I'd heard this voice before because it helped me save or prevent the drowning of my child who was less than two years old. And I believe it was my father who had died 33 years earlier. Really? And that voice, this was in 1980 when our son was uh, 21 months, 22 months old. And I heard, uh, you want to hear that story? Yeah, because, yes, because really that's, I mean, that's the beginning of all this, right? I mean, in a way, um, it's what taught you to really, 
you, it taught you what other people are doing, but if it saves your child's lives, that yeah. teaches you to trust that voice. That's yeah. what, yeah. Well, it was Sunday afternoon, Judy and I had been in the front of the house. We had a conversation. We were living in Longwood, Florida, which is where I live now, a suburb of Orlando. And uh, we finished the conversation. We're starting to go different directions, and I heard a voice in my head say telepathically, I check, go outside and check the swimming pool. That's all it said. There was no sense of emergency, no sense of urgency, just do it. Huh. For some reason, well, why not? I had nothing else to do, so I walked to the back of the house, to the rear. We had sliding glass doors. We had a, a screened-in swimming pool, which is very common in Central Florida, yep. Disney area and all. And I noticed that about 15 feet away, we had a, a, a wrought iron uh, fence, and it had a gate in it, and the gate was ajar. We had three boys, two older boys, who used that as a shortcut, and a younger boy who uh, was less than two. And the, being ajar was not safe, so I went out to close it. And when I did, I looked at the deep end of the pool and saw our youngest son, Jonathan, who was 22 months old, was floating in the deep end, not moving, not near the edge. He was several feet from the edge. There was no way I could have heard a splash or anything from yeah. where I was. Oh, Next, yeah, sure. And I didn't know if he was dead or alive. Yeah. And one of, one of those moments, you, I went running down the side of the pool. Yep. I screeched like an owl. Yeah. Screeched Judy's name. And for some reason, I, I had been a volunteer fireman for three and a half years, and I heard, take your shoes off before you go in the water. So I'm pulling my shoes off, and I'm looking at Jonathan, and his eyes are wide open. There's a small smile. He's akimbo, just arms and legs floating, and he's about an inch under the water. Oh. I don't know. All I can do is dive into the water, come up under him, push him to the side. Judy heard my scream, came out, grabbed him by the wrist, pulled him out. And about 20 seconds later, he spit up some water. Everything was fine. No CPR, nothing. And we, by the way, figured out he'd come out from a uh, bathroom, which was uh, at the other end of the pool. Yep. And we had safety, those rubber safety knobs over the door knobs. Yep. These are things, some, a lot of adults have trouble turning the door <laughs> That's right. So how he got out, we don't know. Oh. Maybe this was set up for me to, to do all this. but. That gave me a lot of belief that the, he can't hear a voice, and in this case, it saved his life and saved us from being bereaved parents. Yeah, well, that, that's right. And and just to see the quinky dinks as you talk, you know, uh, you know, you see that thing on TV. You know, out of the goodness of your heart, you send her a donation. Yes. She's sending you something, you know, you have resistance. I mean, even the integrity, I don't want to take up a seat of someone who could really use this. Yes. You know, it's just amazing to me, all these little things. You, She talks you into going. I mean, you call, you get her, not somebody yes. else. She talks you into going, you go. Not only do you meet someone who just changed this field, you know, to be what it is today, you know, one of the, you know, she's just amazing. If anybody hasn't read Elizabeth Kubler-Ross, they need to. Uh, but you you also meet Raymond Moody yes. <laughs> in yes. the same week, and you know you try to get him to do the research. It never happens. You hear this voice. You had learned to trust this voice because of this experience that you just told us about. It's amazing the things that took place in order to get you to write this book and do yes. this research. Yeah, <laughs> and even there um, now, Judy and I have been divorced for four years. Okay. Uh, uh, this is 1988 now. Yeah. And, and um, 
he was the one who knew the most about this field. And I invited her to come over. Now, to be honest, we had gone through the usual stuff. We were married 17 years, we had three sons, and when you're divorced, it's always it's not easy the first few years. There's about whose car was out in the driveway in the morning. No, typical nitpicky stuff that people do. Yeah. She had already said, let's put down our sword and our shield and stop battling each other and make it good for the boys. Mm. Let's do our best for them. So yeah. we were on a good footing relatively. Yeah. But it was very new, fragile, Yeah. And but we had put down the uh, fighting armor uh, gear and we were becoming not friends yet but at least good parents for the boys. Yeah. We have a lifetime relationship to them and through them to each other. Right. And so I invited Judy to come over, but my biggest concern was if we found these experiences, and yes, I had mine of saving my son, are there any other ones that are, quote, evidential in some way? And while we're sitting there, a woman calls who I hardly knew and tells me about a friend of hers, a relative living in Tallahassee, which is a few hours away in Florida, and how she, the friend had a friend, in turn, who died and came to her. And, talk, and said goodbye, and it was before she knew her friend, the, the terminally ill friend, had died. Oh, she oh. had her experience before she was informed, and that seemed very interesting. Well, Except, yeah, in, in so many levels, right? Because first of all, it's not, um, and we'll talk about this in a moment, but it's not like, uh, you know, grief, you know, grief imagining things, right? Yeah. Um, she doesn't even know the, her friend has passed yet. That's and then right. she has this after death communication and 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 then find out finds out later that it's true yes. but it's also an exclamation mark on your work because just as you're talking with Judy about Judy, doing this work Judy's only there for an hour and I get this phone call it's not like I get them all you know every hour of the hour it's just the first and last one yeah okay so one more green light yeah wow it's just fascinating i mean you're just like being pushed you know you're being shoved into yes. this work and how and that, great and so you and Judy decided to do this research together yeah actually I began with another woman being the researcher herself mm -hmm. and um, we tried to conduct our re uh, uh, re interviews in person but frankly that's very very time-consuming because you're driving all over several counties mm -hmm. and many people weren't kind enough to, if they canceled to even call so this woman would often have to drive 45 minutes to get there and they're not even home yeah. So we did the first 200 interviews but with an interviewer in person and then we switched to telephone interviews. Yeah. With, uh, everything was recorded on audio cassette tapes. That's amazing. I mean, again, you know, remind people no. internet wasn't internet wasn't around at that time. So no, nothing, nothing. 1988 and we didn't know if I'd find, you know, 10 people or 50 people in the entire year. How would I find them? And I wherever I would go, I would try to find one or two people. Uh, I'd sit through a whole workshop someplace or a support group meeting or anything yeah. just to be able to talk for two or three minutes at the end of it. And uh, my goal was to find 10 people a week and I did. We interviewed 500 people the first year. Now that, that right there, I mean, the, you know, what it takes to go out and do 
these you know these little three minute talks in order to get these people to to you know to come you forward. Yes. Yeah. No. No. It's got to be a collector of people and and stories. It's an amazing commitment. Uh, if people can even imagine what that must have been like, you know, to put yourself out there in that way. Were you worried? Were you still working as a stockbroker at this time? No, I wasn't. You know, I was frankly handling my own investments for myself. I was not okay. Like, All right. Good. Um, so, but how about with friends and family? Are you worried about your reputation or what? Not really, because I was always a little bit different anyway. <laughs> yes, I think not many seriously ill or anything, and not a druggie or anything, or an alcoholic or anything like that. Yeah, I had unusual beliefs in their view to some degree. Sure, uh, sure. Uh, being grounded in Wall Street, I was okay. No, I mean, that was something people understood. I was a very good amateur photographer. Yeah. I took a lot of pictures of my children and things like that. And I was very involved. I was uh, divorced at this point. I had two daughters by my first marriage. I spent a lot of time with them and everything. So uh, I was middle of the road, I guess. But people really didn't know me. And we moved to Florida. We didn't know that many people. Yeah. So, uh, so it allowed you to take that leap. Yes. Um, all right, why don't we just get into some of the details because I don't want to run out of time and I, and I definitely want to get through the, the different types of experiences that there are. How many people, you know, I know in the book you kind of talk, you separate it between like how many Americans versus how many people worldwide. Why don't you tell us that? Have experienced an after-death communication or an ADC? May I first give a definition of it? I think that's the easiest place. To let's do that. I mean, I think a lot of our audience knows, but let's do it for those who don't. Yeah. By our definition, an after-death communication or ADC experience is a spiritual experience that occurs when someone is contacted directly and spontaneously by a family member or friend who has died. Directly means there's no third party. There's no psychics, no mediums, no devices, no therapists, no hypnotists, no rituals, no Ouija boards or crystal balls, nothing. Spontaneously means that our deceased loved one shows when, where, and how to contact us. Okay. So it's a very clear thing, but this does not include mediumship. This does not include electronic voice phenomena, looking for ghosts and all that. This is with a family member or friend, not a stranger, not a non-physical being, not channeled writings and all that, okay. but somebody you're related to or have known. And so, as far as you're concerned, anything outside of that is not considered an, an ADC. Our definition, simply because there are a gazillion books already written on mediumship, there's nothing new there. That's but right. this had never been written on. That's the whole point. Yep, yep. And uh, so we wanted something new. And uh, from, from there, it was just a, a question of interviewing people, finding them to interview them. Yep. And uh, as I said, uh, they were in all, all these different states. Uh, of America, we wanted as much geographic and uh, economic and social diversification as possible. So, after you've done this research, now you've spent seven years. You've got a sense of what percentage of the population actually has yep. this kind of experience. We what is conservatively that? estimate that twenty percent of the population. Now, we wrote our book sixteen years ago. Population then was about two hundred and fifty million. Now it's three hundred million. So we say sixty million Americans have had one or more after-death communication experiences. Now, there was a poll put out back then by a Catholic priest, Father Andrew Greeley, where his numbers were double ours. Now, he was saying it was uh, actually uh, about 43% of the population have had 
an after-death communication experience. And last night on the internet, I happened to visit a friend of mine on, on YouTube, I saw her. She's saying 60% of all people who are bereaved, in other words, grieving the death of a loved one, 60% of them have an ADC. Sure, the, the numbers can range, no question about it. But also, you were doing your research back in a time where this, first of all, we didn't have the internet, this no. kind of information wasn't as prominent. Um, no. And it was a little bit more risky for people to come forward and yeah. and admit the experiences they had, right? When they were interviewed, many people said, I've only told the story to a few of my closest family members or friends. A lot of people thought I was nuts, mm. I could go any further, or a few cases. You're the first person I've ever told. This happened 20 years ago. Yeah. This was like, this was like near-death experiences were before Raymond Moody wrote Life After Life. Yeah. And if people had a fantastic near-death experience, in the hospital, and they tried to share it with the nurses or doctors or anybody the next day. Where they wind up in the psychiatric center. <laughs> that's right. And some of them were given antipsychotic drugs and all kinds of things. Well, and that still happens. A lot of misdiagnosis and yeah. spiritual experience. Yeah, that is. It's, it's it, that, that's sad. But so I, I would imagine that's the discrepancy between so, the numbers so, over. So we say 60 million, 60 million Americans have had one, right. which is. Uh, to uh, one out of five people, twenty Conser percent of the population. Cons conservatively, as you said. Very conservatively. Yeah. And I'd rather be conservative and and than be. I'm not trying to hype something. Well, not only that, but I mean, you have a very uh, specific definition for what an ADC is. Yes. Some of these other people might have stretched that a little bit more. Unfortunately, in a number of books by researchers who are really not as organized as we were, but they would just accept whatever they could get their hands on. Yeah. Uh, whatever people sent them in a letter or a phone call or, or a chat on a, wherever they met each other. They weren't even ADCs. They were something maybe with a, an a encounter with an angel, Yeah, uh, they called it, or an encounter with an unknown being and all kinds of things. And they were, it's all in their books. It's, it's hard for me to read a number of those books because they're, they're, they're uh, not discriminate in what they published. Yeah, I'm not saying it's sloppy. It's just that they weren't trained. That's right. Investigators or, research, or official research trained researchers in this field. Oh, exactly, so, exactly. A lot of well-intended people. Yes. And how many how many different types of experience you sort of found? You noticed that there were a certain number of experiences that just seemed to fit into these categories. How many categories there, or uh, types? Uh, Twelve major categories. Twelve major and categories. Not because we analyzed them and said so. It's just. The language I saw, or I heard, or I smelled, yeah. it was the language that they used that put them in the categories. It wasn't right. us analyzing them. Well, I think it's very exciting, and, and you are the man to be able to uh, describe these to people because, first of all, I mean, I, I highly recommend that people get the book so that they can read about them and they can really categorize their own experiences. Uh, you know, obviously, nothing more important than that. But for right now, why don't we briefly go through um, the 12 experiences, I'll, I'll, I'll name them off as you have them listed for me and you had sent me something in the mail and you have them listed and you can maybe just tell us what, what it's like so maybe people go, oh I've had one of those, you know what I mean, they'll know what category it fits in. So number one is sensing a presence, um, otherwise called sentient ADCs. That's where you just sort of feel that the person is near you. Many people can say he or she is off to my left or right, in front or in the rear. There's a, a definite sense that they're nearby. They can often say when they came and also when they left. Although we didn't mention it, sometimes there's a slight change of temperature in the room even. Mm. You can 
temperature seemingly goes up or goes down. Okay. But uh, well, these typically occur very quickly after someone has died, although they can occur many years later. That doesn't really matter. Yeah. Because I think they're just trying to get through to us uh, and uh, let, let us know they're there. But just when you feel their presence, um, that's nice, it's comforting uh, usually, but uh, what we encourage people to do if they can, and obviously not when they're driving a car, but to sit down, close your eyes, take a few deep breaths, relax, sort of get into a meditative state and ask to receive a message. Because yep. they're not there just to hang around, they're there to try to communicate if we're open to it. Yeah, yeah. As pretty as one of these may be to know that they're there, it's still there's still more, I believe. Just, is, is this the same idea like uh, if, uh, say I'm studying hard uh, in a library and I, someone sneaks up behind me and they're sort of looking over my shoulder, I might not have known they're there in any other way than I can feel them. All of us have done this at one time or another and we look and sure enough there's somebody there. Is that sort of the idea? I think so, yeah. Yeah. Now, some people would describe it perhaps a little, a little bit more concretely than that. Really? I have not had that myself, so I yeah. can't speak of all of these. I've had some of these. Yeah, all right. And, uh, and, and it's, it, it's an inner knowing, that is what we say. And, but on the other hand, people say, well, I'm just imagining this. Well, that's what I was going to just say, because it seems like this would be the one, to, the, the easiest least, to write off. Like. It's the least, least substantial, yes. Okay, yeah, interesting. All right, number two, hearing a voice, auditory ADCs. Tell us about that. Okay, some people claim they hear a voice through their ears, like you and your viewers are hearing me now, yep. the ordinary way we communicate with each other. But the majority of communication is by telepathy. You don't hear anything with your ears, it's mind-to-mind -mind contact, thought transference. You hear a voice in your head, very specific words. And some people, not many, but some actually are able to have two-way conversations this way. Oh. Especially people who have been married many, many years and are now widowed, and but they go on and have conversations. I met one woman that was walking in the store and just began chatting with her. She and her husband used to run a business. He died fairly young and she talks to him every night and he gives her information of how to continue running the business. Now, that's not typical, but that's uh, a form of how it can be two-way. That's yeah. ongoing. Yeah, that's, that is really neat. And I've heard of people doing that and, and, and they said the biggest challenge for them was just trusting because they, they were just hearing that voice in their yeah. head. and Now this, is, I want to stress at the same time, they know who it is. This is not just some voice that's telling them to pick up a weapon and hurt somebody yeah. or to end your life and go get a gun. And I mean, right. it's not a demonic or I don't even like that word. It's, it's not an unknown entity that's threatening in any way. That's right. In many cases, that would more be along the lines of mental illness. Um, I, don't, I don't even want to go there. I'm not certified or qualified. Yep. I'm yeah, but I, that, and that would be the difference. Somebody so. they definitely know and trust, and they recognize the tonality of the, vo the voice, even though it's not a voice. They, everybody has a certain cadence. They use, many people have certain phrases they use, yep. and things of this nature, and, and whatnot, and that's what they hear by telepathy. And that's how you tell the difference, though. When you're researching and doing your research, as long as those criteria are there, not like you said, I'm just hearing a voice, don't know who it is, but they're telling me to do something. That, that doesn't that, count. We didn't even interview those. Interviews. Yeah, okay. So you they were pushed, pushed aside. Know who it is, who it is. Well, I think that's important because I think there's a lot of people out there, certainly the skeptics, who would be thinking that, you know, these are part of the 2,000 people that you interviewed. Those people didn't even make it into the... You see, I, I did all the screening and I probably spoke to four or 5,000 people. 
and only the ones that I felt had some veracity to them did I turn over to the uh, in, uh, interviewers. And I had ten different interviewers, not all at the same time, but over a period of seven years. And Judy was one of them. And uh, so there were many people who, who think they're in our book, and they weren't even interviewed yeah. because they had a very good pre-interview, a pre-screening, and in some cases. It, it didn't fit our criteria, and I didn't hurt, want to hurt anybody's feelings and just say, no, you're not, it's not for you. I just let a phone call go on, and they thought that was the interview, me doing it. Yeah, that's <laughs> so, right. In other cases, uh, it definitely, you know, it, it just wasn't, or we had too many of the same thing. After a while, when we got, you know, 1,500 or more, we had a lot of this, and we didn't need more. And, and uh, each interview, frankly, each person cost me about $100 by the time. It was all done. That's amazing. This was, this was a lot of money that was invested. I'm not trying to impress anybody with the money, no. but saying over seven years, it was about $50,000 a year. Because phone calls in those days were 15 cents a minute. <laughs> and many of these were 45 minutes to an hour and a half interviews, plus paying the interviewer, plus the transcriber, plus uh, mailing things back and forth, consent forms, and stuff like this, on and on and on. There are many, many costs involved. That's amazing. Uh, number three, feeling a touch, tactile ADCs. Tell us about that's that. Literally, uh, now that's a small category because not that many people would recognize a particular touch. So it's something that's very familiar to them, like a pat, a tap, a caress. Some people sort of brush, as they go by, they brush their hair or they snap their finger. It's little mannerisms that people have. And you, you know who that is. Even with your eyes shut you would know, on earth, you would know who it is. And it's that kind of thing. Um, it's hard to describe, but these are, again, all of affection, uh, nurturing, uh, warmth, assurance, and people know who it is. And some feel like an arm around the shoulder, around the waist, or even a hug, one or two-armed hug. And this is, again, we're, the important thing is we use their language. Every account, 353 accounts in the book, yep. are in their language. We didn't modify it. We had to edit them because the experience may be told in a linear way or it may be all over the map. Yeah. We put in linear story, and it's their language, not ours. Yeah, all right. Um, now, so were there people who felt the touch but didn't know who it was, so again, okay. they were discarded? when we didn't use them. No. Okay, all right, so only those who, who, who knew who it was. Hmm. Yeah. Interesting, okay. Um, can I just ask you, if you don't know, I mean, if this just isn't what you get into, that is, it wasn't, isn't what you get into. But, you know, I reckon, you know, some people might feel this touch, I can only imagine, feel this touch, might even think they know who it is, but they're scared by it, um, you know, and so therefore the fear doesn't even allow them to really yes. recognize yeah, we, it. We covered that, uh, we have a sub-chapter about, we call them fearful ADCs. Okay. And mostly it's because it's the unknown, they've never heard of this happening to anybody else. They think they're going crazy, they're in a room by themselves, maybe a bedroom or whatever, and this is just booga booga booga, it's scary. Yeah. And so they will move themselves out of that receptive state, maybe turn on a light or get up and move or whatever, yep. and they're frightened by it. Especially yeah. if it starts to, they, somebody starts to appear. We have first-hand cases, they're all, again, in Hello from Heaven. Yeah, and, and, and I, I would imagine, I'm guessing, but I would imagine ghost stories over the years, some of the TV shows that exist, the movies are yeah. to blame I, for this, some of that. Aaron Elm Street didn't help our class. 
<laughs> that's right. That's right. Um, okay. Uh, let's see. Do when something like this happens. I mean, does it happen? Doesn't it doesn't happen to have to happen at nighttime? It's nighttime, daytime, right? Anytime, any place, anywhere. Yeah. Okay. Uh, uh, some of these occur in a car. I never understood how can you be driving a car and your deceased loved one is you see him or her. Well, I haven't gotten that far. Yeah. You see him sitting next to you or in the back seat. Now, I would. I think I would be off the road. I mean, the, yes, spinning over down the ditch. You know, you know? <laughs> Nobody did that. That's what I. And I'll explain why. Okay. All right. Well, uh, before we get to that one, we'll do so. Number four, smelling a fragrance. Uh, olfactory ADCs. What's that one? Now this is where you smell a scent, which can be a cologne, a perfume, aftershave lotion. Uh, some people say tobacco smoke. Now, some of these accounts involve pipes, which people don't use much anymore, and different pipe tobaccos have much more different aromas than yeah. cigarettes do. Yeah. But even cigarette smoke can vary. Um, it can be a favorite food, uh, bath products of all kinds, just anything that has uh, sachets in a drawer, anything that has a fragrance to it. But what makes these interesting is that, let's say you're in an office in the middle of Wisconsin in the middle of the winter. And you're in a cubicle of, of a corporation, and all of a sudden you begin smelling lilacs. Now there are no lilacs growing. There are no lilacs in a bowl or anything because they're long time of year, middle of winter. And you don't say anything, and somebody else comes down the corridor, sniffs the air, and say, "Oh, where's the lilacs?" Ah, right. And maybe a third person comes along and doesn't even hear what the first second person said, and oh, that's a beautiful scent. Who's wearing lilac perfume? Well, yeah. nobody. Yeah, so, yeah. What I'm getting at is that smelling a fragrance is often has uh, witnesses to it, and so two or more, in one case, up to uh, twelve people all smelled a certain fragrance at the same time in the same place. That's great confirmation. Oh. There's no, nothing there, and it's a beautiful little story in a way. I tell it briefly. It was there was a, a little girl who tragically died, and uh, it was a single mom, and they had a funeral. I guess it's a church cemetery kind of thing, and they came back. These are all women. And when the mother came in the house first, she smelled the scent of roses, but there were no roses there. And uh, 11 or 12 other people all came in, and all but one smelled the roses as well, but there were no roses. And the only one who didn't had never known the little girl when she was alive. Oh, my goodness. Wow, well, that plays with your mind in so many different ways here yeah, yeah. very story like that right oh okay and of course that's not always the case uh, no. but no. for some reason it yes. was in that incident yes wow that's cool that's cool all right so the next one we're getting into the appearances imagine uh, there's two here I think they're both part of the number five which is yeah. partial and full appearances yeah. these are visual ADCs the only difference is that when we say partial, you can see the outline of the body. It's a faint outline. It can be um, just like a transparent mist or something, or you might just see their head and shoulders or from the waist up or the knees up, that kind of thing, or it's less than fully solid. It's less than, you don't see the entire body. You don't see, it, it's not fully solid. Yeah. So yeah. this is just to write two chapters. One is partially visual, and the other is full visual where you see the entire person and they feel they uh, look as lifelike as though they were right in the room with you mm -hmm. and 
good health, like they were fully alive. And the beautiful part about these is, and by the way, some appear just as a ball of colored light. And oh. I don't know how much you've gotten into orbs. I don't know if that's what the people mean, but we have three experiences on their partial experiences where they just saw colored lights. They didn't see a, per a person. But they knew who it was and what, what it was about. And so obviously this is very exciting when you see the person. But the important thing I always stress is when you see their face, they're almost always smiling. They're letting you know that they are heal, healed and whole and they also have radiant health, they're, all, they're glowing. And they're assuring you that regardless of their form of death, which could be a horrible fire, automobile accident, battlefield, I don't have to go through all the list, but they come back in one piece, so to speak, healed and whole, in radiant health, and whether there's communication or not, often there is, at least by their smile and everything, they're letting you know they continue to exist, they're fine, they're okay. And these are so healing to have these. I, I, I imagine it must, well, I don't know. I mean, I know a lot of people are visual. And for some, I think it would be one of the most, you know, confirming, you know, to actually see uh, either partial or full. Um, and this is what you were talking about with the car. You know, people look over and they actually see their loved one there. Uh, I've heard a lot of people talk about this. I've, I've heard a woman talk, tell me a story about uh, her husband walked up the stairs, you know, I mean, and she heard it first, so this is a combination of types here, and yeah. and then she actually saw him. And and, and the, I want to stress these do often occur in combination. Do they? And so with a full appearance, we've had it where they not only see them, but they touch them. Mm. There's actual physical touch. There's verbal communication, usually by telepathy, and they can smell a cologne or an aftershave or something as, as well. The only thing that's not involved is taste. Although one person claimed it was taste, but I'm not so sure. Yeah. Yeah, okay. Um, and, and Elizabeth Kubler-Ross, the story that you told um, where the, you know, she, she actually had that, she had that full vision of someone who actually wrote something down. What happens in that point? Did, did she, Elizabeth, Elizabeth actually say that what the woman wrote down she could see later? I heard the words but she gave it to a minister named Rene Gaines who she describes and I, I never followed that up myself. Yeah. I had other things to do and she certainly had other things to do but uh, she gave it to him. Did you ever run into anything like that where people no. claimed? No. Okay. That's, that's, that's an extreme case there. Yes. And, and there were, keep in mind no matter if we wrote a book with 5,000 accounts in it, there'd still be 5,001. In other words, there'd be another variation. Yeah. This is just an indication of what can occur. Right, yeah. This is not, a, there is no finite number. That's right. Human circumstances are too large for that. And these are just the most common uh, categories that you found. Yeah, yes. All right, number six, uh, a glimpse beyond ADC visions. This is very hard to describe, but it's literally seeing a vision um, and I've seen one but not in this context it's like seeing a 35 millimeter slide suspended in space it could be in black and white but often in color it could be small it could be large in some way and it can, it can happen with your eyes open that's what I'm describing now or with your eyes shut let's say you're meditating or praying you typically have your eyes shut you see a picture in your head and you turn it sideways sort of what they call the third eye between the or above the eyebrows, right in the ear, you have a, like a viewing screen and you see them there. 
Yep. And you're seeing them, we believe, in their dimension. And, and it's like watching a movie, and you can have two, one or two-way communication as well. So every one of these is a full chapter of at least 15 experiences in the book. Okay. And it's, it's not just one or two. There's a whole bunch of them. That, and they all fit. We go from the least complex to the more complex. Yeah. In the in the chapter. You can see that now. Uh, are you familiar with shared death uh, yes. experiences? Would, would those fit within this category? Now those are uh, shared with uh, near death experiences. Okay. Now we have something we didn't publish, but I hope to write a, a sequel now, uh, and we call them bedside experiences. Mm -hmm. It's very well known. It's called deathbed visions or deathbed uh, departing depart departing visions and whatnot. A person is dying in the last three uh, days of their life, they'll look up, they'll start talking to somebody. Could be a brother, sister, mother, father, wife, nobody knows. Um, and they'll, all of a sudden their health will improve, they're, they're animated, they're glowing, they're talking, and it's like a two-way conversation. And so a bystander would say they're hallucinating. There's nobody there, they're imagining things. Uh, if they're a nurse, they'll say this patient's either having too much drugs or too little drugs. We've got to change the medications. Yep. And whatnot. We have a whole bunch of first-hand accounts where a third person, a third party, stood there and watched and saw the one who came back. Right. And not just one person. Maybe the whole room is filled with people. Yeah. Yeah. All those bedside experiences. We have not published those yet. Well, and, and that was my understanding of shared death uh, experiences, that it, it, it is related to, to these deathbed visions as well. They were able to see that. Sometimes they're able to even follow their loved ones after they pass. All kinds of different uh, variations of that. But what did you call it? Because I really liked the name we of that. that bedside experience. Yeah. Yeah. Very and cool. Another one that we have is a very, we have a lot of these. We didn't, again, we could only do so much in one book. That's right. Uh, we call it the soul leaving the body. We have a whole many of uh, people seeing literally the soul leave from the middle of the chest or the top of the head, like a little wisp of smoke mm -hmm. or something like that, and then it forms into the likeness of the one, of the body, of the person who died. Yeah. It's their spirit, their soul, or their Atman, whatever you want to call it. Yeah. Uh, the being of light, that's who we are. And uh, then they sometimes one or two-way communication. And then it's sort of like Superman, up through the roof or out through the window, gone. Really? And then a third category is escort to the light, which is, we don't have that many of. It's a really unusual one, a hospice. These are hospice kind of experiences where you have to be with somebody at the time of their death to, or around that time to be there. But some people will be in a meditative state or whatever and will literally escort someone who has died to the light. And so it reads like a near-death experience. Yeah. Uh, trees and valleys and on up to the light and then thank very much for escorting their loved one to the light saying you may return now it's not your time go back home be happy jeez so there's a lot of stuff and there's I'm sure there's more that we don't know about That's we're not right. experts yeah. nobody is wow man mind blowing <laughs> stuff later it's, I'm sure somebody would cover some of this and they haven't yeah yeah yeah, yeah. well, well isn't that part of it? Isn't that what a lot of us are doing anyways? We're like, oh, someone someone surely must have covered this by now. Well, we have them. They're in our files. Um, Children's experiences. 
Number yeah. no, uh, number seven encounters with the al at the Alpha uh, Twilight experiences, right? What's, that's that's the next because one. Uh, Twilight experiences. That was the languaging they were saying. Just as I was falling asleep, you go from the beta awareness to the Alpha, Beta, Delta. Alpha is where you're relaxed. It's, it's where you generally uh, enter the meditative state, that kind of thing. Or people would say, just as I was waking up. And then if they are waking up, often the person they were thinking they were dreaming about is there, and they open their eyes, and there he or she is standing right next to them. Yeah. Okay. That's and interesting. They, it's a smaller category, but it's, it was their languaging, so that's why we included it. I, I think I had a mini one once. I, I was in that state, and all of a sudden, I don't, but I don't know who it was, so I wouldn't have fit into your categories uh, here. But uh, I saw this face in front of me, and it just said, Bob! <laughs> and I okay. It woke me up. Yes, yeah. <laughs> like, your attention. Yeah, it got yeah. my attention. Um, number eight, more than a dream. So sleep state ADCs. Now, this is a huge category. Now, there are ordinary dreams of the people who are bereaved have, or you don't have to even be bereaved. You have a dream of someone who's died. And a typical dream is kind of symbolic and jumbled. It's kind of swims in time, and you have to... Unless you write it down, it kind of drifts away pretty quickly. We all had that. But with these, uh, sweet state after death communications, these have a beginning, a middle, and an ending. And they feel like an actual visit together. And because they are, and people remember these in exquisite clarity 10, 20, 30 years later. And, and they say so. And uh, it's all. They'll say, I had a dream, but it was unlike any other dream I ever had before. Mm, so yeah. they don't have the language. I mean, how many people know sleep state ADC? But they say I had a dream, but it wasn't like a typical dream. And my husband, my child, whoever, was there, and whatever there was, it could be a familiar place, could be a very unfamiliar place, and the possibilities are endless. If they're in a large group of people, sometimes they're the only one who sees the one who died. There are a lot of variations uh, to sleep state ADCs. And basically, it's because they can come to us when we're the most relaxed, while we are meditating or sleeping. Yeah. And I say when I give a workshop, how hard it is to get through to us in ordinary waking consciousness. Right. I call you on the phone, I get an answer machine. I leave a message, maybe you return the call. Uh, I send emails, maybe it gets deleted, maybe it gets answered. You know, facts are the same thing. It's so hard, that we're so busy, busy, busy to get through to each other. It's very difficult for physical people. Yeah. You know, important people where money and Contracts depend upon it, and uh, parents wow. and child, and relate, you know, from dates, dating, and relationships, and all that stuff. Yeah. So imagine how hard it is for someone to come through to us who's not in physical form. Well, that's interesting. And the people that I've run into that have had those, that's one of the things they always say is what you mentioned earlier is just uh, the most vivid dream they've ever had. And it could have been 20, 30 years ago, and it feels like it was like last night. Yeah. Yes. Yes. Yeah. And what I started to say earlier about these experiences, that there's something about them, and this is why it can be in a car and not call throughout. You feel a sense of incredible peace when these occur. Yeah. Peace that passes all understanding. Oh. And and I wonder about women, their child was killed, say, in a car crash, you know, teenage boy, uh, prom, and all the usual stuff. And it's horrible, and everybody's upset, and several children are killed, some are injured in the hospital. Then the son comes to this woman a few weeks, a few months later, or whatever, 
And the, he, when she sees him in a dark room at night, how does she see him? Because his body gives off light. It's radiant light. He radiates light, whoever it is, he, she. And you can see all the details of their face. Mm. And whether they speak or not, these are so comforting that rather than what I would have thought they would do is they'd get on the phone and call every relative and friend and saying, my son was here, my son was here. Yeah. Instead of that, it's the first night they've had where they've been so relaxed in their grief that they can go to sleep. Mm. And they fall very deep, comforting sleep wow. afterwards. And then they share it, if they share it. If they and do. Yeah, if, if they do. So very interesting. Produce tremendous comfort, so you don't have to freak out when they occur. Yeah, that's yeah. right. Oh, I like that. I like the. I, I just love the idea of them actually being able to get a good night's sleep with that kind of comfort yes. for the first time, and who knows how long. Yes. Number nine is homeward bound out out of body ADCs. Okay, this is my favorite one to talk about because now I can be a little bit philosophical. <clears throat> the way I was raised is, and I was raised as a Episcopalian. And I was a Catholic convert in my late teens because there was a girl I wanted to marry but didn't. And I attended a Unitarian church in my late 20s. And uh, if I go now, it's to a Unity church. So I'm a Christian, yes. Uh, very liberal. Yes. So, uh, but I was raised to believe that some part of us, when we die, called our soul or our spirit, whatever that is, whatever it is, if we're, we'll leave the body and if we're a good boy or girl goes up, and if we're not so good or bad, if we're really, well, if you're Catholic, there's limbo and purgatory. But if we're really bad, there's another place we can go, and et cetera, et cetera. Okay. Right. And that's pre-standard Christian belief. That's yes, right. And that I, I'm not going to go outside of Christianity because I'm not that familiar with it. Any sure. Other However, what we have come to believe, what I've come to believe is that this, this is what I say. And each of us, you, I, every listener, viewer, you have, we are a spirit or a soul or a being of light right here, right now, wearing a physical body. This is our earth suit. We have to have an earth suit for me to pick up the book that you can see. Yep. For, for you to see me via our communications, via Skype. To communicate, I need a body, you need a body. To do all the things we do in this lifetime, we need a physical body. And therefore, the only thing that really dies is our physical body. We leave it. We, it's no longer relevant. Or as Elizabeth Kubler-Ross used to say, a physical body is like a, a winter overcoat that's worn out that you no longer need in the springtime. You take it off and discard it. Same thing. And uh, so each of us is that spirit of soul right here, right now. And if we get that, and then we're all united, we're all one, and all the other philosophical kind of stuff. Yeah, it's really all about love, and but I, I but just within this, uh, and some people are literally able spontaneously to leave their physical body mm -hmm. for a short time, generally while they're meditating or in full sleep, and they this encounter a deceased loved one nearby, meaning in their house, short distance away down the street or a few miles away. Others tra will travel travel several hundred miles. Mm -hmm. Others. Uh, the galaxy for one of better language and a few literally go to we call it heaven and uh, the title came to me I didn't make it I, I didn't create it I woke up with it one morning so heaven means afterlife you encounter them in heaven meaning the heaven afterlife nirvana uh, paradise happy hunting ground spirit realm whatever <laughs> you want to 
That's right. Heaven fits. And uh, you see them in that dimension. And it's so incredibly beautiful. Yeah. And the bushes, the flowers, the trees, the grass, the colors are heavenly. And you see your deceased loved one there. Or in five, we have five cases where somebody literally goes through a tunnel. It reads like a near death experience. They go through a tunnel to the light, and there their deceased loved one is standing in the light. And they have usually communication, yep. two way yep. communication. And they're told, it's not your time, now you must return. They go back through the tunnel, back into their physical body. And if I said this, if I put this in a book of near death experience, it would read just like it. Yeah. Yeah. So you don't have to be near to death. And by the way, all the people we interviewed, we uh, ascertained, uh, had you been drinking or, or using any, quote, recreational drugs? And if they said yes to that, did not experience this. They're <laughs> not in the book. Unless otherwise specified, everybody was in a, good, good, uh, a normal state of health. Yeah. Yeah, perfect. And in some cases, they were not in a good state, but we indicated that. Okay. In our book. All right. So, uh, or are not on drugs or alcohol or anything. Sure, and, sure. And... Uh, so a lot of people have out-of-body experiences. That's cool. Yeah, we did a video uh, interview a few weeks ago on someone who has just had a whole bunch of them since he was 12 years old. Really cool. Love the idea. I'd love to have one myself. Um, working on that. Uh, number 10 is person-to-person. -person. You call them telephone ADCs. What's that? It's a small category. And actually, one man wrote a whole book on this, uh, Scott Rogo who was a parapsychological researcher. He called it Phone Calls from the Dead. That was his best-selling book, and then this publisher dropped it. So, I, mean, I don't get it, but oh. anyway, it's you could be asleep. Let's make it you're asleep. For some reason, uh, full appearance or anything, one of these when you're awake would be too much, but you can handle a phone call ringing in your sleep. Yeah. You pick it up, you hear the voice of the one who's died, and have a one or two-way conversation, and then it's over. But what about you're in your home, you're in the kitchen doing whatever, cooking something, or any other part of the house, the actual telephone rings, real telephone, the old, yeah. not cell phone for the moment, just ordinary phone, yeah. home phone, yeah. why? Why the technology you gotta keep up with. Yeah, right. And you pick it up and you hear the voice and have a one or two way conversation. And then generally the voice fades away, there may be some static at the end, but always it's as though the line is cut sort of severed, you never hear a dial tone or a disconnect or a hang up, it just ends. It's a small category, 5% at the most. Short conversations, brief I imagine? Relatively. 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 Boy, that, Boy. Would be, that would be that would, really, really nice. Just to hear their voice again, I remember finding a uh, an old cassette tape that went with one of my answering machines uh, years after my father had passed and hearing it, just the sound of his voice just brought back all kinds of warm, fuzzy feelings. <laughs> Sweet did our research. Remember, our book was published in 1996. Yeah. yeah. Um, people are reporting more and more that they're receiving messages on their telephone answer machines or answer, uh, voicemail, that there are messages there from someone who's died. And also on computers that there are messages. And there's not an email from somebody. I mean, it, they can't account for it. Yeah. Nobody's yeah. a trick on them and things like that. And uh, so through this electronic communication devices. And my uh, former wife, Judy, figured out electricity, there's something about it that's relatively easy to manipulate. Yeah. Yeah. Age boys are especially good at it. And they can make the garage door openers 
I mean, the garage doors go up and down and all kinds of wacky stuff. Yeah, but yeah. We'll get into that in a minute. Material it's, matters. So ADCs of physical phenomena, would that fall into that category? Yeah. Uh, lights, now, of course, almost anywhere lights can go off. A light bulb burns out, big deal. I'm not impressed by that. I want to know when lights go on. Or if it's a, there used to be something called a touch lamp. You could touch, it would go on, touch, it would go off. There were, uh, we have one account where somebody's saying, make the light blink once for yes or two for no. Mm -hmm. And then you have a conversation and it blinks once or twice. Uh, but others have a whole, maybe the uh, lights in their bedroom go on, and then in the, uh, down the, throughout the house, the hallway, the living room, dining room, kitchen, microwave, television, everything starts blaring at once. Or uh, maybe just a stereo or radio go on, uh, or TV, and it's to a station they never listen to, and it's playing the song you associate with the one who died. Yeah. Yeah. And it could be something like uh, Tears in Heaven by Eric Clapton, something like that. Yeah. yeah. Or whatever that, their song was. I don't want to say it's any particular song. But it's some kind of physical phenomena that occurs you can't account for. It. Um, the woman was saying last night, which is true, we have it in here, music box starting to play a year later, mm. often mm. an anniversary date, yeah, or the wedding anniversary, the, uh, the anniversary of the uh, birth or the death of the one who died, mm. or you, the experiencer. Now, uh, toys begin operating, things that are, are even missing pieces, or battery operated, and there's no batteries in them. <laughs> oh, jeez. Can't count on it. I don't have to. I can just report. I'm a reporter. I'm, I don't have to explain it. That's I, it. That's it. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. No. Exactly. All right. So, well, that was number eleven. So, for the so the the twelfth yeah. category, butterflies and rainbows, you call them symbolic ADCs. This is very common. There's something about human beings, regardless of what they believe. They say, "Whoever goes first, will you give me a sign? Send me a sign." And the most common ones involve butterflies and rainbows, but it can be. Animal, the uh, birds or other animals. It can be almost anything. But here's what I mean by butterflies. Maybe a butterfly will come and land on the casket throughout the entire service, or land. Uh, Wayne Dyer talks about one on his finger, or on their uh, shoulder, or you go outside and you see a whole flock of butterflies, ones you're not even familiar with that you don't see in that area. Yeah. You're yeah. there for a few seconds and then disperse. <coughs> Or you may be out walking, let's say in a park or something, and the butterfly kind of like leads you somewhere, and you follow it, and you find a little glen or a seat where you sit down and you feel especially good. So it's not just seeing a butterfly; it's it's a behavior. Same for birds. Birds come to a house, maybe peck on a window, mm -hmm. or come down next to you. Yeah, yeah. All birds, not parrots or parakeets, uh, chickadees or hawks or Cardinals, or you name it. We, I think we have, if I kept a list, probably about 20 to 25 different species of birds that have been reported as having behavior that they so took as a sign. Yeah. It's not me saying it's a sign, it's for them to say. That, that is pretty cool. I mean, that's amazing. Well, all right. So, and what I love about Hello from Heaven is it's just like story after story after story. So you can pick one, any one of these categories that maybe you had had one or you think you had one. And in, in that just one chapter, you can just read example after example after example of other people's stories. First of all, it's uh, as I was reading, I just couldn't stop. You know, it's like you read one, they're only like one and a half to two pages long. 
and then you just want to read the next one. You just want, you know, it's it's a little bit addicting because uh, they're neat. I mean, they're neat, but for if you've lost a loved one, they're also <coughs> bless you. Uh, they're comforting. You know what I mean? They just make you want to read more because they comfort your soul in some way. And I loved it that way. I love that you have so many of them in there. A lot of people, we have a lot of books that just have one or two or three anecdotes, you know, per chapter. Um, you've got lots of them. We have to, we're running out of time, so I'll just, I'll ask a couple things. Uh, first of all, let's just ask, what is your website? It's www, after, A-F-T-E-R, hyphen, hyphen, death, D-E-A-T-H, dot com. Okay. After, hyphen, death, dot com. And mainly, we have a message board that people can communicate with each other on. That's our, act, our most important feature. That is yeah. nice. Uh, lots of resources on there. I know just Healing and support groups for brief yeah. people. Yeah. It's a bereavement site, frankly. Yeah, that's, yeah, that's that, it. Well, that, that's where the heart is. Well, and, and, but to have to have that board where people can sort of communicate, uh, it, it, that's that's invaluable. Uh, are you doing any upcoming events, Bill? Uh, no, I'm, frankly, I'm 73 now, and yeah. I'm turning down lectures because I don't want to get on airplanes anymore. <laughs> and I have a project of uh, working on a sequel to this, and I want to do that. Great. Great. And so I'm willing to drive to anything, yes, in Florida, but I don't want to get on another plane, go through security, and yeah. you know, the rest. Yeah. And you don't I've need to. We have Skype years. now. We have I've Skype. I've done it for years. I don't need to keep doing it. <laughs> and we want to read that sequel. We want to read the sequel. So that's great. Um, any final, final words, uh, Bill, that you want to just say you know, to, to our listeners, uh, our viewers, uh, about this subject? Well, basically, we regard after-death communications as a natural and normal part of life. And... We want people to treat it like that. It's not other than. It's not weird. It's not eerie, strange, different. It's just maybe something they haven't heard of before. Yeah. Read the book. You'll know more about it or as much about it as we do. That's and right. we also have six chapters of why are these real and not hallucinations, grief-induced hallucinations or imagination, wishful thinking, or grief. And each of those has 15 different categories. I mean, 15 different experiences. And our basic message is that, uh, that everything we've learned convinces us that life and love are eternal. I love that. Bill, can't thank you enough. I appreciate it. Uh, when you come out with that other book, let's do it again, okay? Very much so. I really enjoyed this, Bob. Thank you. Thank you for making it so easy and fun. Ah, my pleasure. All right, we'll Peace see you. Bye, Bill. Bye. Bye for now.